thank you. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience. It's finally time to dig into some strategy on how to win some bucks on DraftKings this year. Now, if you're not in the realm of constructing lineups to win some bucks, I got some bucks to give away for you on DraftKings. 20 of them and multiple ways to do it. So here's what you do. There's four ways to actually do this this time around. Number one, smash the like button for the episode. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section and give me your one best tip people should know for winning on DraftKings. The second way to do it, Rate, review, subscribe, and download the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast. Leave your DraftKings handle in the review, plus five stars and something nice about the show. Number three, follow me on Instagram at the PME. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section of a football video. It's number three. Number four, share this shit around on social media. Give it a retweet. Give it a share on Facebook. If there's some sort of social media, I don't know, snap it to your friend. I don't care. Then just reply to me. Not quote tweet, reply to me or leave in the comments section your DraftKings handle that way you'll all be in the draws for 20 DK dollars it's a free millionaire maker entry to kick off week one of the NFL season but we need to figure out ways that we can go through this to figure out the best strategies and constructing a team where the best areas of leverage you can find are and the thing that I've been doing and I've been successful the last two years not like millionaire successful but like I've won more than I've lost on DraftKings the last two years the main reason because I use the dailyroto.com optimizer tools and strategy the advice up there right now and if you want to do that as well and you go to dailyroto.com use the promo code the pme t-h-e-p-m-e get yourself 10 percent off highly recommend it uh i i mean unless i'm like shilling socks that i wear once uh i generally only promote things that i use that i really believe in and i really do believe in the daily optimizer daily roto optimizer and their tool so the pme 10 percent off i suggest everyone go do it and to help me absorb all of this and really get to know the system a little bit better because tweaks are always being made at dailyroto.com. Drew Dinkmeyer and Mike Leone are on the line to go through this strategy session. Mike Leone, you're up first. It's been a while since you've been on. Yeah, it has been. You know, I didn't play as much DFS golf this season, so I missed doing the shows with you and Ben, uh, but I'm very excited for football season. I think there's always a tendency, you know, once we get to the tail end of whatever the previous season is, it gets a little bit stale games get a little bit tougher and you just convince yourself you're going to win a ton of money, whatever the next sports season is going to be. And it so happens to be NFL. And as you said, we're always making tweaks to the optimizer. We have some tweaks that we're excited to show you that I think are going to help people build some really strong lineups, especially the people that like to MME. All right. Drew Dinkmeyer at Drew Dinkmeyer on the line. How many millionaires have been made through daily Roto so far? Six, seven. And do you count yourself in that? Yeah. So we count myself, we got to, you know, we got to up the stats. So we count myself in, in the mix as well. So we have, uh, we have seven so far looking for an eighth this year. Uh, last year, week one, we, we uh, had our seven. So we're hoping to start the year off with a bang, like, uh, like we did last year, but it's been a great trip uh, through the, the history of, of daily Roto and kind of transforming ourselves from a content brand to more of a projections analysis along with that content. And now with the tools and research that we have to help people build lineups um, in a quick and efficient way and in ways that can help you increase your correlation and improve your DFS uh, GPP game. But, but Drew, I'm a subscriber to Daily Roto and I haven't won a million dollars <laughs> yet. Well, I thought it was guaranteed. 
Yeah, that's that's the way this works, right? You just uh, you just click and follow the screenshots, and and you you get your own screenshots. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. You're going to have to do a, a little bit of work on your own. We'll we'll certainly set the table for you, uh, but you're going to have to put all the tools to, to the best use, and uh, hopefully, we'll have some more uh, millionaires this year. Well, we're going to go through strategy and tips and how to construct your best, at least best foot forward, DraftKings NFL lineup for the upcoming season and how to use a lot of these tools and why that's so important, especially if you're entering multiple lineups in a lot of these DraftKings tournaments and even tournament selection. But the thing that I do want to kind of hit on, because I'm joking about me not being a millionaire yet, because let's be real, it's never going to happen to me. It's probably going to happen to the people out there once they become subscribers. But Drew, can you talk a little bit about expectations and really what you want to be getting out of DraftKings NFL. Like if you're playing $100 a week, is there a certain way that you should be doing that? Um, if you're a full-time player, is there a certain bankroll that you should have? And then does bankroll management come in? Because personally, I, like most people out there, I'm playing this for kicks. Of course I want to yep. win. But if I lose $100 a week playing DraftKings football, then I lose $100 a week playing DraftKings football. I'm not going to lose every single week. Some weeks I'll win like 600 and that's good for me for six weeks. And I don't up the ante a little bit. So what should people expect realistically entering the season? Because not everyone's going to win a million bucks. <laughs> no, certainly not everyone will be able to. And I, and I think this is one of the most important things. So I'm glad we're starting the show with this because it is really important to define your goals and your expectations kind of going into a season. And so the first thing that you should do is you should define um, how much money are you willing to spend during the course of the season? This should be money that you're comfortable losing if, if that happens to be the case. Then you should define what your goals are for that money. Is your goal simply to grow your bankroll? Is your goal to try to take a shot at winning a million dollars? What is your goal for, for that money? Because However you define that goal is ultimately going to determine how you put that capital to work in your game selection, in your lineup construction approaches, um, and how you're trying to deploy that capital on a week-to-week -week basis. So the first thing I do is I'd set the parameters around what the money that you're willing to spend for the season is. What is your bankroll? It could be what's in your DraftKings account. It could be what's 10% of what's in your DraftKings account. It could be, if you'd be willing to redeposit, it could be more than what's in your DraftKings account. But define what that money is first off and then execute a plan during the course of the season on how you want to allocate that, that capital based on what your goals are. A lot of people, it's going to be enjoyment and fun and entertainment. And that's totally cool. That's what this game is for most people. Some people, it's going to be trying to grind that bankroll to get to a higher point. And depending on your specific goals, you should have different strategies uh, that you're putting out in play each and every week. So for me in particular, I'm look like I said, I'm looking to have some fun. And if I do hit the nuts lineup, the best lineup out there, I want to get paid off. I'm not playing cash games. I'm not playing head to heads. Uh, I'm not playing triple ups or quad ups or anything like that. Leone, like I, I'm trying to win big and I'm, I kind of enter the season with the amount of money that I want to spend on DraftKings and theoretically think, well, I could lose every cent of this and I would still be okay. I don't worry about that that much. And that's how I use my bankroll. But if you're not like me and just a huge fish and just dumping money into this all the time how should you be thinking about if you want to be a grinder let's say let's say you want to consistently keep your bankroll and try to grow it a little bit what do you think the best way to do that is in terms of tournament selection i think what you really want to focus on is some of the flatter payout structures if you're again more concerned about grinding the one contest that's already up for week one on DraftKings, the nine dollar slant uh, is, you know, it's not in everyone's price range to be able to multi-enter that, but that's a really strong contest where you get paid off. If you have that nuts lineup, like you said, I believe it's a 50 K grand prize up top. 
but you look at 10th place, it's generally five to 10% of what first place is. So if you're getting in the top 10, it's somewhat flat and you're going to win. The minimum payout is 2X your money. So if you cash top 20% lineup, you're going to get $18. You're going to double your entry fee. So I would look at contests that mimic that structure. I particularly like the slant, but even if you find some cheaper ones, um, there's some 20 max contests too that might follow a similar structure. You know, you want to get away from, you probably don't want to play the Millie Maker if your goal is to grind some money. You know, that's a contest where you're really hoping to bank and win a million dollars. That's where the expected value resides is hitting that one uh, in a long shot type of lineup. Whereas a contest like the Slant, you've got the upside, but it's going to let you sustain your bankroll over the course of the season if you're making some. So, Drew, uh, as a veteran of winning a million dollars in these contests, um, I think you would probably agree with Mike on this. And let's say I had $300 per week. Actually, you know what? Let's, let's go back to the 100 Let's say I had $100 a week to spend on DraftKings. Am I better off uh, multi-entering the $9 slant? Should I be looking at the $3? Or should I be trying to play one of these, like, three max GPPs that's, like, $20? What do you think the best route is uh, as a part of that strategy? So I think the first thing that you'd want to consider if you had $100 in play on a given week is, again, uh, are you trying to shoot for the moon or are you trying to grind? If you're trying to grind, I think you want to focus on the flatter payout structures. Uh, certainly some of those three max and single entry contests can be really good as well. In terms of, you know, we often talked in the past about grinding with respect to cash games and playing these double ups and 50-50s and head-to-head -head contests. And I, I still think there's value in those, but I think you need to be even more particular about the games you're choosing there. I would try to choose the single entry double ups a lot of those double ups where you can enter, you know, hundreds of lineups if you want are going to be flooded by a higher percentage of the lineups coming from professional players. So I think you want to focus on single entry double ups. You want to focus on uh, flatter payout structures and GPPs. Now, if you have $100 and your goal is, hey, I'm trying to win the million, five entries in the million every week is probably going to be uh, your best bet. So define those goals, uh, figure out and, and uh, align those goals with the contest that you're selecting. But but even yeah, and well, I was gonna say Mike. But even if let's say my goal isn't to necessarily win a million dollars, it's to win one of these big prize pools. Am I better off putting five entries into the Millionaire Maker or playing one of these like larger price GPPs for like seventy five or a hundred dollars and just narrowing down the people I actually need to beat? You're yeah, probably better off narrowing down the people that you need to beat uh, and, and not playing the Millionaire Maker. The Millionaire Maker is really its own beast. Uh, you know, if you have any expectation of grinding over the course of a season, uh, you, you don't want to be playing the million maker. And one thing I wanted to you know, piggyback what Drew said, like whatever you're doing, whether you decide you want to do the single entry three max, because you don't want to compete against a whole bunch of lineups, or maybe you want to MME the slant each week, or maybe it's the 20 max. Don't change just because you had a bad week. We get a lot of subscribers who sometimes you know, they want a single enter and then that lineup goes bad. And then the next week they're like, well, if I would have just done the 20 max, so then they do the 20 max and then they jump to making 150 lineups and they're jumping back and forth. You really, as Drew said, you want to set your goals ahead of time going into the season and have some sort of a plan. It doesn't mean you can't adapt over the course of the season, but you can't be overly reactive to one bad week. You know, you really want to figure out what's the best, if I'm playing 20 max, what's the best way to attack this? Give yourself at least three, four weeks and, and try to attack it in a manner that you think is profitable and see how it goes. Don't just bail after one week because, you know, you were overexposed to one guy and you lost all 20 lineups and you decide, well, now I'm just going to single enter. Okay. I drew anything to add to that. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, ultimately you want to kind of uh, learn a specific type of format. 
if you're, especially if you're new to this and you're, and you're kind of figuring things out, the more you play that same format, the more you can kind of analyze that one contest and understand how people are, who are being successful, how they're approaching it. You can kind of look at their player allocations by downloading the CSV, um, different things like that. But the more you kind of stick to a specific process and give yourself time to evaluate that process, the more likely you're going to learn something that is unique to that contest that can help you make money over time. Yeah, I'm just looking at some of the offerings for week one, and obviously this is going to change week to week, and the time that we're recording this, we're still a bit far away that new contests could be added, but for like $100, there is a there are two separate single-entry contests. One of them pays out $10,000 as a first prize, another one pays out $20,000 as a first prize, but then there is another one uh, where it only has 2,500 people in it, and first prize is $50,000. I'm starting to, because this is really where I think a lot of players get into trouble, immediately because they're just kind of hey I, I made three teams and i'm just going to mass enter them all and everything as i mean i'm speaking from personal experience on that <laughs> uh, because that's what i've been doing for a long time i think that really narrowing down not only what i'm going to spend per week and not adding on to that on sunday morning when i get the itch um but just trying to narrow down some of these larger stakes tournaments like i i feel like i'm done playing you know, 20 lineups in the nine or, you know, trying to put 10 into the millionaire maker and maybe putting one into this, like uh, it's called the $275,000 bargain bin guaranteed overlay, $50,000 to first. There's 2,500 people in it. Well, it's not obviously likely that I win it. It's far more likely that I win it uh, than having five into the millionaire maker, right? That So that tournament in particular is an incredible tournament that if you had $100 and you just wanted to make one lineup for the week, that is where your money should go. Because anything that says guaranteed overlay as a DFS player, you should be trying to get into um, as quickly as possible. Because that means that the site is not only taking a site fee from the contest, but there's actually more money in the contest that's then entered. So you're getting a discount on the entry fee right away. Um, those rarely happen, these guaranteed overlay tournaments. They're usually promotional deals on week one, but make sure to take advantage of those. But getting back to kind of your main point there, Pat, is what, what you're saying is you've experimented over the course of the last few years, and you've realized that for yourself, instead of making like 20 lineups and spreading them across kind of smaller, uh, smaller stakes, high entry level fields, you feel like you have more success in more of the focus fields. And I feel like that's the case for a lot of people, but for some people, they actually do better when they have more lineups in those smaller fields and, and they figured out a way to kind of play those contests. And so that's why I'd say stick with an approach for, you know, like a month of the season and identify if you can find something in a specific contest that you think you can um, improve your results with and put that to work. Um, for me, it's often been a mix of different things in different sports. I, I focus on different things. Some sports I focus more on mass multi-entry. Some sports I'm more of like a high stakes single entry player. It just depends on kind of the sport and, and what I've learned kind of over the years. So I would certainly experiment with that if you're, if you're new to DFS and you're playing tournaments, focus on kind of one tournament and one strategy and style at a time and learn something about that contest and see if you can apply it. Well, Mike, one of the big things that I found last year, like I said, I've started moving away from those lower stakes, entering 20 or 40 lineups, however it is, mm -hmm. and moving into like the three max $75. I just had a lot more success doing that. I had to narrow down my choices, narrow down my player pool, and just really commit to things instead of being like, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll take two of this guy here and four of this guy here and try to max them all together. But as it turns out, like my favorite thing, I mean, obviously winning is my favorite thing when it comes to playing DraftKings NFL, but I just really like building rosters. And I think that's why people do the like 50 different lineups and play the 50 cents or the $3 or whatever. Right. Yeah. I think what you want to do, it's difficult to do this, to have this sort of discipline, but I think Drew will 
also agree to this. If you can try not to make actual lineups too far in advance. You know, what happens to me a lot of times is, you know, the pricing gets released. I'm making lineups right away. And then you get emotionally attached when you actually submit a lineup. And then Sunday rolls around, news breaks, things change inevitably. There's some injuries, uh, the ownership projections change, and you got to tweak things. And instead of, you know, tweaking those lineups you made at the beginning of the week, you just make a few more lineups and you throw them in there. And it's very easy to talk yourself into making some negative expected value lineups when you're making a lot of lineups and just throw away expected value. And you really don't want to do that. You don't want to use the fact that you're making extra lineups as an excuse to do things that don't make sense um, just because you have a lot of those lineups. And uh, the other thing I'll say along those lines is if you make you know three lineups for one contest, you decide you want to enter another contest, you really want to compare the payout structures because the three lineups you made for the original contest might not be the smartest lineups for a different contest. You know, are you playing against 275 people where you don't have to be, you know, mega contrarian to win, or are you playing against 200,000 people? So you really want to keep in mind of making the correct roster for the correct payout structure. So not only matching up the payout structure with your bankroll goals, but also matching the payout structure with the lineups that you're making. All right, let's Dig into some DraftKings NFL lineup strategy. Drew, we'll go with you first. Off the hop, what are some things that people need to know? If and we'll, we'll go through this from mass multi-entering to up to 150 lineups. But maybe we'll talk like 20, 25, 50. Uh, then we'll get into three max, and then we'll talk about single entry a little bit. But for mass multi-entering, what do people need to realize when they start constructing their player pool? Well, I think the first thing that you need to think about when you're competing in guaranteed prize pool tournaments with you know, tons and tons of entries is what's going to be the most efficient route to kind of getting to the top of that leaderboard. And usually that, that means two things. Usually that means one, you need to correlate your lineup in a way that if one player is doing well, other players are doing well alongside them. So most commonly and most frequently, this is discussed in the way of stacking your quarterback with pass catching options so that if your quarterback is throwing lots of touchdowns, hopefully it is to the pass catching options that you've chosen and you're getting exponential boosts kind of up the leaderboard while they're doing well. And the second thing to think about is how can I move up the leaderboard when everybody else is not moving up the leaderboard? And that's the, the idea of being contrarian and trying to find ways to be a little bit different than where everybody's going to go um, on a given slate. So I think those are the first two things to think about when you're playing GPPs, whether it's mass multi-entry, whether it's 20 max, whether it's three max, whether it's a single entry, you want to think about how can I draw correlation in my lineup and how can I be a little bit different than the field so that when I am right and I am rewarded, I am moving up, but not everybody else is moving up the leaderboard with me. So Mike, I think that Drew hit on something interesting there when he talks about being contrarian and the larger the field, the tournament, realistically, the more contrarian you should be. And using the daily roto tools, especially with the ownership percentages, can really put you onto someone who's a bit lower owned. I think the largest mistake that people get into when it comes down to this is just taking, well, this guy's 0% owned, I'm going to use him, and I'm going to fill out my entire roster of guys that aren't owned. Like That's not what we're talking about here, right? No, not at all. You First of all, every player that you're taking in a tournament needs to have some sort of tangible upside. You need to be able to visualize the route towards that player accomplishing what they need to accomplish. You can't just say, oh, well, they're low-owned, so it's a good play. If it's, it's not that simple, unfortunately. And as Drew said, you know, when he says being more contrarian, it's not that you don't want a 5%-owned player in a smaller field contest 
um, versus uh, a large field contest. It's very beneficial to have a high upside 5% player in both contests where the difference is when you're facing 200 people, you don't have to go as far down the list to find the 5% owned play because ownerships tend to conflate in those smaller field contests. I think that's where the big difference is. You still don't want to be super chalky in small field contests. And what that means is if you're hitting on, let's say Nick Chubb, we like Nick Chubb week one. He's a great value player, you know, whoever it might be. And everyone's on it. That person's going to be even higher owned in a small field contest than they are a larger field contest. So there is an element of still being pretty contrarian in a small field contest and fading that really higher ownership where the difference comes in, what you're, who you're replacing the chalky player with doesn't have to be this off the wall, you know, outside the box play. A lot of times it can be the third or fourth best projected value, like on our site or whatever site you're, you're happening to use. So you want to keep in mind, you know, how far down, you know, the value player list do, how creative do I have to get to find the five to 10% on play? And the other thing you hit on, you don't need a lineup of all five to 10% play. You know, sometimes a guy's just a really good play. And, you know, one strategy, you know, Jonathan Bales talks about this a lot. It's kind of taken from Nicholas Taleb. It's called the barbell strategy where you have, you know, a lot of your roster spots are pretty conservative. These are just the straight up good values. The math works. You know, we're not concerned about ownership. We're just taking the best plays. And then you reserve, you know, two to three spots for sort of those more fragile assets who have that upside. But, you know, there's definitely some floor concerns, but you're getting paid off on those types of plays because the ownership's going to be down. So I think balancing your overall roster in most contests makes sense. There might be some times in a million maker where you want to make a lineup that's really contrarian throughout. But I think even the million maker results from last year, you'll see most of those lineups have a couple of the plays that the field was on and they were just really good plays. Uh, Drew, if you want to set it up in the optimizer, let's say I want to build 20 lineups for week one, but the big thing that I want to do is do some of my research first and look at the expected plays run for these teams and the over unders of the game. So you, can you rig that up for me on the daily roto yeah. system? Yeah, we've got it right here in front of us. And you can see uh, at the top, we have the games, uh, the field here, and you, you can see the totals and the plays. I actually had an edit on Jacksonville that I was testing, so we'll move them back. Um, but you can see the total plays run, the pass run distribution, the distribution of touchdowns, uh, rushing and, and passing. And then you can see kind of this for all the individual teams in, in the games here. So what our, what our projections allow you to do is we allow you to be customizable at multiple levels. You can be customizable at the game level or at the player level. Um, so you can control kind of all the inputs that go into our projections and almost create your own projections if you, if you really choose to uh, and spend the time on it. But what our goal is with, with this, the customizability is to allow you to test different scenarios ultimately. So if you wanted to test a scenario where you know, Jacksonville scored only 10 points, uh, you could see how it impacts their individual team player projections. What it would do is it would push their player projections down. Um, you can do that sim similarly by raising teams as well. But if you were wanting to set up 20 lineups, let's say, for, for the first uh, week, I'll, you'd go to the settings tab here, you'd scroll down to the desired uh, lines and you'd put in 20, and then you could kind of from there decide how you want to set up correlation for your team you can use these stacking rules to kind of set up correlation and make sure your quarterback, whoever is chosen, is paired with a running back, a tight end, a, a wide receiver tight end, or any of those combinations. 
you can bring them back with opponents from that same team to create correlation. And that's what I was talking about with the ability to create correlation in your lineups while also uh, maximizing your ability to be different. So if you scroll down even further in the settings, you also have this max public owned. And with our ownership projections, this is the sum of each of the lineup spots that you have, their ownership, a cap that you would put on it. So if you wanted to say, I want my lineup to have no more than 100% of total ownership across all the positions, meaning if I summed every position in the lineup, my total would be below 100%. I would just change this max public own down to 100 and none of my lineups would be optimized in a way that the projected ownership would be above 100. So there's ways that you can naturally enhance correlation and contrarian uh, level approaches in your lineup construction through our optimizer. Uh, Mike, when we're using the optimizer and we've got our research in, so let's say, I mean, this Kansas City Jacksonville game in week one, and when we do the week one show, we'll hammer down on this a bit more, but it seems like most people, if attacking that game, are just going to take the Kansas City side of the ball and just kind of overlook the Jacksonville side of the ball. So when you're actually stacking and correlating your lineups together, would you build some sort of grouping, do you think, that said, you know what, I want to have the Tyreek Hill. I want to have Travis Kelsey. I want to have Patrick Mahomes. But I also want to have D.D. Westbrook coming back the other way or Jeff Swaim or some combination. Do you do one team stacks or game stacks if you think that game is going to be a shootout? So I think a very underrated stack is bringing an opponent back on the stack. And a lot of times why that's so valuable is because the field doesn't necessarily want to do it in a situation exactly like you're discussing, where you get one offense that people aren't very high on for the season, the other offense, which was the best offense in all of football last year. So you can make groups that say, you know, if I'm using Patrick Mahomes, not only stack a guy on KC, but give me exactly you know, you might not want to bring back too many Jacksonville guys, but give me one. Give me exactly one of, you know, these pass catchers, or even you could throw Leonard Fournette in there, supposed to catch the ball a little bit more this year, maybe get some dump downs in a blowout type contest. And with DraftKings being full PPR too, you know, if games get out of hand, if KC puts up a ton of points, one, you're instantly rewarded on the KC side. But that full point per reception, the ability to rack up the bonus for the 100 yards of receiving, there are a lot of outs to an underdog team sort of hitting value at the skill player positions because you don't need necessarily a whole ton of scoring from them. And obviously, if you get a touchdown, it's a bonus, but you can get a six for 100 game from D.D. Westbrook. And all of a sudden there, you're at, what, 19 DraftKings points. You know, that's going to pay off. That's going to get it done in a lot of tournaments, even without finding the end zone. So I do think it makes a lot of sense to take advantage of the grouping and say, if I'm making a KC stack, give me one of these pass catchers from Jacksonville. And that's one of the advantages to all the groupings we can do. And, you know, this is separate from what you just asked. But I also think an interesting thing with the grouping that you can do is group out players that you think are going to be super popular together. So let's say there's three chalk running backs, you know, use at most two of the three chalk running backs in any lineup. So they're really good values. You know, you want to make 20 lineups, but... You don't, you don't want to not use the really good running back values, but don't use all three of them together because too many lineups are going to be constructed that way. You're going to end up with too high of ownership. So there are different things you can do with group, you know, even outside of the stacking, uh, which is a bit more apparent at first glance. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy. Getting out is hard, especially if your FICO score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just a credit score. 
and offer smarter interest rates to help you pay off the high interest credit card debt. Something I really could have used when I was in college, I'm not going to lie to you. Upstart goes beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. Upstart believes you're more than just a credit score. They believe in you and they understand that. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate in just a few minutes without affecting your credit score. And the best part, once the loan's approved, most people get their funds the very next business day. The next day! Over 200,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards, student loans, fund their weddings, or to make a large purchase. Free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. To see why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot, and hurry to upstart.com mayo to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash mayo, M-A-Y-O. So, Drew, when you're going through all these tools, like this, uh, what you just put up there, Mike just talked about, is use two of these four. When you're actually constructing your lineups, and I- I'm guessing that you usually generate 150, not 20, but even if we're just doing 20 and that's what we want to lock down on, how do you really assess your player pool, even if it just comes from different ranges? Like, do you go into a week, and we'll, we'll talk about, let's say, running back first, that you assess week one and you say, you know what? Everyone signed. There are no injuries. All these guys that we want to have opened up for value because of holdouts, they're no longer on the table. Zeke's back. Gordon's back. We don't know this. Let's just say this is a theoretical here. And there's no one from down on the list that you like in the $4,000 area or the or the lower $5,000 area. What would you do with your running backs then? Like, do you have to narrow down your player pool to like three or four running backs that you're going to kind of mix in between uh, because you don't have that range of guys? And how would that affect the rest of your lineup constructions? So I think this is a, this is a good topic and it's kind of a a honed in question on a broad topic on the whole, which is like, how do you go about trying to construct your, your player pool? And what's the first thing that you do on a given week? And for me, the first thing that I do on a given week is I go through each position and I start to kind of narrow down how many plays do I feel pretty darn good about at each position. And basically I actually like handwrite these out and then I see how much depth I have at each position and where the depth is at different price points. So in the scenario that you described, where the depth at running back is not in the cheap price points, I want to see, okay, what other position is their depth at those cheap price points? So I understand that if I hone in on a few specific running backs, I'm naturally going to be honing in on this other position in that group of players as well. And is that something I'm comfortable with? And if the, if the answer is yes, then what I might do is I might restrict my player pool on the running back side and open up my player pool a little bit deeper on, let's say, the wide receiver side. If I think there's a lot of cheaper options there. So I think one of the first things that you should do on any given week is get a feel for where you're most comfortable with the pricing at each and every position. So you start to have an understanding of what your lineups are going to look like when you use an optimizer. Because ultimately, an optimizer, all it's doing is it's you're setting the framework for how you want the lineups optimized, and then it's just spitting out the results with our projections from the framework that you've created. And so I need to know what type of framework I'm creating with the optimizer each week based on the depth at each position 
and the number of players that I'm comfortable using. So, Mike, I know that there's no real direct answer to how big should your player pool be based on the amount of lineups that you have. Some people like to spread it a bit thin. Some people like to really concentrate down. And unlike other sports where you're dealing with myriad positions, that it could just shift from position to position. Like, oh, I have a good feel for running backs this week, or there are so few values. I'll make that a very tight core of players. But at tight end, I know I have to pay down and maybe have to use a $3,000 or $2,500 tight end that maybe I want to expand my player pool down there just take a few shots here and there what do you think is the best way to try to address your player pool or at least tips to give someone who's trying to construct multiple lineups yeah it is definitely tough because it can be so weak dependent you know if i see a week where there's a running back play i think it's a top three value and for whatever reason the field's not on it you know i'm not opposed to locking that player and putting them in all my lineups but then there might be other weeks where i don't have anybody you know, owned in more than 30% of my lineup. So I think it's more week to week. Um, I will say the running back position in general is one that I like to hone in on a smaller set of players. So by making 20 lineups, you know, maybe even just five to six running backs because the volume there is a bit more projectable than other positions. You get a little bit less standard deviation in the performances of the running back position. And as a result, I'm more comfortable narrowing down that player pool and getting to the guys that I think have the requisite upside for the really huge games. Whereas wide receiver and tight end, you know, when you're dealing between six and 12 targets for guys, there's a lot of variance on, you know, maybe this guy who usually gets 10 targets, but he gets seven. And even if he gets 10, you know, if he converts six for 60, it's not a big game. If he converts eight for a hundred, it's a huge game. There's a lot more variance at the receiving position. So I'll generally expand my player pool there and, be less likely to lock a player, be less likely to be heavily exposed to a player at wide receiver and tight end. Uh, So I hope that helps. Quarterback, I will say that I think it's a position we put a lot of energy into and that energy uh, isn't necessarily worth it. I think it's a position that um, you're not going to separate yourself a whole ton at the quarterback spot. So a lot of times, you know, when I'm making my stacks, I'll actually work the other way around. You know, if I have a receiver I really like, I'll stack with that quarterback. And what exposures I end up spitting out at quarterback, you know, I try not to get too hung up on it. I try not to get too hung up on whether a quarterback's high owned, low owned. There are exceptions here and there, but that's the position that I pay the least attention to in terms of my player pool. Uh, Drew, how do you go about sorting position by position in your player pool? Does quarterback mean as little to you as it does to Leone? Is it the last thing you think about? Is defense the last thing you think about? And if it's going to be, let's even just stick on quarterbacks just for a second. Um, Obviously, they're going to be involved with your stack, but do you come up with the stack first and then correlate the quarterback to it? And are there lineups where you'd be like, you know what, Kyler Murray, I'm taking him or Lamar Jackson based off their rushing ability. And if they hit their peak value, they need to have a big rushing game that you wouldn't even consider using one of the other receivers along with them so first and foremost let's all remember that brock osweiler against the bears uh won a million dollars last year and the bears were like the the number one defense in the nfl uh to highlight the variance associated with the quarterback position when the projections uh and the results usually get kind of bunched together so going back to how i set my player pool Um, I used to really start at the quarterback position, honestly, for GPPs and think about, okay, what quarterbacks do I really want to stack this week? And then I would kind of narrow that list down. What I've been doing, and I started doing this a little bit towards the end of last year, is especially when I'm hand building lineups for smaller fields uh, for single entry for three max, 
is I start more with the running backs and I kind of, because as Mike alluded to, there's fewer to choose from. And so you're kind of making your, your choice on the volume opportunities there and then seeing kind of what kind of salary I have left for the remainder of positions. And then from there, identify which stacks would make sense based on the salary I have left. Because if you do it kind of the other way around, what you'll sometimes end up with is these lineups that Mike talked about that might not have the requisite upside because they're punting too many positions. Because if you like kind of the mid or upper priced uh, running backs and you've already committed yourself to the high priced quarterback stacks, well, off the bat, you're, you're making it so that a few of your lineup spots are gonna be almost pure punts. And those lineups are gonna be really hard to find the requisite upside because you're going to need multiple really cheap players to do something that they are not accustomed to doing. So one of the things that I kind of changed and adapted over the course of the last year was trying to think through my stacks on my hand build lineups from a running back position first. Okay, where am I going at the running back spot? And then based on these running back choices that I'm making, what do I have available left in salary? And that's where I can compare kind of the stacks based on the quarterback pricing and the wide receiver or tight end pricing. Uh, to see what fits and what gives me a lineup that still has overall the most amount of upside. Uh, are there any lineups, Drew, that you build that are just, like I said, like naked Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, yeah. Josh Allen, uh, Russell Wilson, uh, Cam Newton, these types of players that you know that if they hit their ceiling in the rushing aspect that they might not have to do anything through the air, therefore you don't want to stack them with anyone? It's rare, um, but there are quarterbacks, and you you highlighted the ones that are most likely to fit that mold, the Kyler Murrays, the Cam Newtons, the Lamar Jacksons, that I will be uh, willing to run what we call naked, meaning without stacked uh, receiver skill sets. And so, you know, we had shown the settings uh, where you could stack generally and globally. Um, I don't use those in our optimizer because I generally will build out groups where I say, if this quarterback is used, then use two of their receivers. Or if they're a running quarterback, maybe use zero. I won't create a group for that. So I could have some uh, Lamar Jackson. But I would say, like, if using Lamar Jackson, don't use Mark Ingram. Um, well, I mean, I mean, you, you, you just nailed the best piece of advice in daily fantasy. Don't, don't use Mark don't Ingram. Use Mar <laughs> Can you show us how to do that in the optimizer, though, by, yeah, like, grouping absolutely. different guys together? Absolutely. Can you, so, Can you show, Pat, you just clicking X on Mark Ingram? Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. We can we can do that. We can we can start. So this is the first part of the process. Uh, every time you go and make lineups for a given week, you just want to sort by running back and over to Baltimore, and you just want to uncheck Mark Ingram right there. <laughs> From there, you've already guaranteed yourself a much better chance of profit this season, according to Pat Mayo. And so that's the first starting point of every uh, of every optimizer tutorial that I'll have uh, going out. But generally, what you want to do is so you have these stack settings that we have that are global. And you can say that every lineup that you build will have two players from the quarterback's team paired with them and one opposing wide receiver or tight end. And you can make lineups that way, and that's a, that's a totally reasonable way to make them if you want to kind of make them quickly. I will do it differently where I will kind of build out these groups where I make sure that I say, okay, like Patrick Mahomes, if I have Patrick Mahomes, any lineup with Patrick Mahomes, I've made him the key player We'll have at least two of Sammy Watkins, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, or Damian Williams. And then I'll say on the other side, my Mahomes stacks, any lineup with Mahomes will have exactly one of these Jaguars players going back. So the way to do something like that is if we were to do these lineups with, let's say, Lamar Jackson, I don't want Lamar Jackson, um, let's say, paired with Mark Ingram. Uh, we've already unchecked Mark Ingram, so he wouldn't show up anyway. But I would say lineups with Lamar Jackson must use exactly zero of Mark Ingram. And I'd save a rule like that. 
if you wanted to make sure you stacked Lamar Jackson, you would create a new rule and you would say, okay, Lamar Jackson, um, I'm going to have him stacked with Mark Andrews. Oh, wait, I need to make Lamar first. <laughs> then, then Mark Andrews, uh, or Marquise Brown. And I can say basically any lineup with Lamar Jackson uses exactly one of these players. And so that's a Lamar uh, lineup that would have one player stacked with him. Or you can do that with you know, two or between one to two or at most. Um, you can use all these different if-then statements to set up your different stacks. And so what I will do on a given week for myself is I will create these rules for every quarterback that I intend to use in my player pool. And a quarterback like Lamar might not have a rule on a given week because I'm open to using him without his receivers. Whereas a quarterback like Matthew Stafford, who I know has very little rushing opportunity and upside, I would make sure that he was always stacked uh, with at least one pass catcher. Often two. I often stack my quarterbacks uh, with at least two pass catchers because I'm playing these kind of top-heavy prize pool tournaments where you really need the maximum level of upside. Mike, it sounded like so, you wanted to uh, jump in here for a second. What did you want to add? Yeah, just with the Lamar Jackson thing, as Drew said, you know, that's the type of player you don't want to force a stack, but you wouldn't mind increasing the chances of that happening. So sometimes what I'll do, I won't create one of those groups. I'll go to the, I'll create all my Lamar Jackson teams at once. So let's have 150 lineups. I know I want 10 Lamar Jackson lineups. So uh, rather than running 150 lineups all at once, I'm going to run 10 where I lock Lamar Jackson. And maybe Drew can show you locking Lamar Jackson. And then I'll boost, maybe I'll boost all his receivers 10%. So now I'm more likely to get his receivers in a lineup because I've boosted their projections all 10%, but I'm not forcing them to be in the lineup. So I can still get some naked Lamar Jackson, but I'm more likely to also get a stack of Lamar Jackson with one of his receivers. This is a way that, you know, some people don't like to do it this way because it's a little more tedious because if you're doing it this way, you're building lineups by quarterback. Um, versus running 150 all at once or 20, whatever it is. But it's something that given, you know, depending on the week, sometimes I do like to pick, you know, okay, here's the 15 stacks I want to run. I want to run them 10 each. Uh, and I'll do it more customized this way rather than having, a, you know, a stringent group. I think both processes work, uh, and but some might work better for certain situations and certain quarterbacks. Drew, let's, yes. keep, let's, let's keep it here for one second. If I wanted to export these lineups, how do I do that? Yeah, so you would just download the lineups here and you'd get them in a nice CSV file. And then you would then be able to copy these over on your DraftKings file. Um, you would just go to DraftKings and you can go to the lineups page and you can download your contest file and you can over uh, overwrite whatever you have on that file or you can just upload these lineups right to DraftKings. I like to edit through the contest file so I don't just have all these like lineups that I don't intend to use. Uh, that I've accidentally uploaded. Um, so that's the way I do it. But you you get the CSV file that you can just transfer right over to DraftKings. Yeah, I usually just go to upload lineups and then I just go, boom, pop in the file, then yep. my lineups just appear. I don't even need to open the file. It just opens it for me when I go to hit upload. Mike, what were you going to add? Or Drew, what were you going to add to what Mike was saying? So what I was going to say is this is the result of those those lineups where you see Lamar Jackson because we've boosted Marquise Brown. Marquise Brown is getting in a lot of these lineups. And we don't have ownership caps. We didn't set any here. So you'll see Lamar Jackson is in 100% of these 20 lineups recreated. And you can see the results of uh, by position. You know, we have Lamar Jackson, obviously, 100% because we locked him. But you can see what other players were used in this uh, in this run of lineups. And 
it's a it's a quick and easy way to see kind of where you're exposed uh, to players. These obviously are condensed lineup runs because we only ran 20 and we didn't set any ownership caps on any of the individual players. So you can allow yourself to get up to 100% of a given player. And you'll see a little bit more spread out at defense because defense in general, um, the projections are tight and you get uh, more options. But the running back position, you can see there's just you know a lot of Le'Veon Bell, Nick Chubb, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey with these Lamar Jackson teams because Lamar Jackson is relatively affordable at quarterback. Well, it's funny that it's spread out so many of the defenses. The one thing that I feel like I have the best grasp on as it pertains to constructing DraftKings lineup week after week, and it gets better as the season goes along, is I'm actually okay at picking defenses, which sounds like the craziest thing in the world. But <laughs> once you actually have a bit of data to work with, like you can just go to uh, like footballoutsiders.com and look at defensive line adjusted sack rate versus offensive line adjusted sack rate, see if anyone rates inside the top 10 in defense versus the bottom 10 in offense. And if that's a game where the quarterback is probably going to drop back to pass a lot of times just target those teams get the pressure and then all of a sudden good things happen mike i think that a lot of people fall into the trap and be like oh i want to target low total games but even if you take like jets bills for example uh, the bills could be a great defense uh the jets could be a good defense they could be going against a bad offense but if the teams run the ball combined 60 times during the game there's not a whole lot of fantasy scoring that goes on no especially maybe in a cash game where you just don't want to get negative points sure but in a tournament, when you're looking for upside, what you want is a defense that's facing pass attempts and or an off you want a defense, yeah, a defense that's facing pass attempts. And ideally, it's a defense that's a decent sized favorite. So hopefully those pass attempts are coming in stress situations for the opposing offense where they have to throw from behind. The defense is ready for it. They can unleash the pass rush. The opposing offense is more likely to take chances. So I really like defense you know this is a perfect world scenario you can't check all these boxes but home defense um that's a touchdown or so favorite against a team that is willing to pass the ball quite a bit and as you mentioned you can layer in some of the football outsiders metrics there's some other stats you can look at to try and project sack upside and i remember one one of the best defensive calls i ever made it was denver at home against andrew luck and the colts and people weren't playing them because the colts had a pretty decent team total with andrew luck but it's a guy that takes sacks it's a guy who you know will take some chances and turn the ball over and you know andrew luck got in a negative game script and we ended up with some sacks we ended up with a defensive touchdown you know that's where you really get your upside of course there's a lot of variance when it comes to defense but I think last year in particular, I felt like two years ago, the chalk defenses just seemed like they went off uh, all the time. And last year, it felt like it came back down to earth where uh, we saw you know, very little predictability in defensive scores from you know, based solely on salaries. And it really wasn't worth it to pay up for the high-end defenses. I think some of that was variance, but it also goes to show you that the components of defense that matter the most, which is a pick six uh, can sometimes be the toughest to predict. And as a result, you really don't want to get anchored to a defense, as you said, Mayo, just because there's a low team total. Instead, you want to find out where that upside's coming from. And that's a good pass rush against an offense that's going to have to pass a lot. 
Yeah, and just really the breakdown of it is the more pressure that you can put on the quarterback, the more mistakes and the more opportunity that there is for fantasy scoring. A sack is a point. That's a good thing. But when you get sacked, yep. you're at a greater risk of fumbling the ball. Or if there's a lot of pressure, you're at greater risk of throwing a pick. And if there's a fumble or pick on the board, all of a sudden that has a chance to be returned for the big bonus in the return touchdown. And even combining all those things together, like if it's a sack, strip fumble and then they return it it's just it's 10 points or nine points right off the hop so you need to put yourself at least into the position to get lucky that that's going to happen if you target one of these just run stopping defenses that are really good in real life it might not actually come through as it pertains to fantasy drew is there anything else let's say defense wise that you would think about because looking at week one what leone described as a big home favorite against a bad team with a bad offensive line that's the eagles against the redskins (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think the Eagles will certainly garner some some interest in week one. I think you guys nailed it. It's it's essentially you want to chase teams that are going to be playing from a defensive standpoint in positive game scripts, meaning their team is playing from ahead, forcing the other team to be predictable in their play calling and forcing the other team into a lot of pass opportunities so you can rack up points. Uh, the points allowed thing in terms of the scoring for DraftKings, it's just not a big deal. It's the equivalent the difference between allowing like 14 points and 30 plus points is the equivalent of like one turnover. Um, in, in fantasy points. So it's really not a big deal at all. You just really want to focus on teams that are going to have a lot of opportunities to generate pressure and either rack up sacks or force uh, questionable decision-making from the quarterback position. So the correlation that you guys talk about as it pertains to defense, I guess there's one of two ways to do this. Shout out Al Smiz on this one for the double dip, where you take the kick return i guess dd westbrook would actually kind of qualify for this because he returns punts i believe or at least he did in the past return punts for the jags yet he was also a starting receiver for the jacksonville as well you don't want to just take a return specialist and that's all that they do you want a different way for them to accumulate fantasy points but if you took the jags d and dd westbrook if he gets a return touchdown you would get double points out of that that's a very high risk and you know low probability play but it happens from time to time i guess the other one would be and i know a lot of people have talked about this and i don't know actually drew what the correlation is but pairing a running back with the defense with the idea being that the defense generates a turnover uh close to the goal line of the opponent then the running back just runs it in and then you would just capitalize on your turnover that way is that overthinking it so a lot of people do like that running back plus defense uh stack combination we actually have that as a setting in the in the optimizer that you can choose uh, to make sure your running backs correlate with your defenses it's not something that i do Um, But it's something that I don't mind when it happens naturally because they both benefit from the same game script. If your team that you have the running back on is playing from way ahead, that running back is usually going to get a lot of opportunities in the second half of that game to salt away that game. And also, if they're playing from way ahead, they've probably scored touchdowns. And running backs mostly get their upside through touchdowns. So those two things work together. And when you're playing from ahead, your defense is getting a lot of opportunities to rush the quarterback. So that correlation makes a ton of sense to me. I love Al. I love Pete. I love the guys on the Edge podcast. I am not a double dip believer. I think the punt return, kick return equity is so, so infinitesimally small that it makes almost no difference at all. Uh, So it is not something that I ever intentionally do in my lineups. Um, Love those guys. Not a strategy I follow. 
Uh, Mike, I want to talk about three max strategy just a little bit and how that differs from if you're building 20, 50, 150 lineups. When you're narrowing your player pool down to this, if I'm playing three teams in a three max, which I hope the Pat Mayo Experience NFL Listeners League will end up being a three max entry like it is for golf. Do I want to play similar teams across it? Do I want to have the same guys in two out of three lineups or at least my core of guys? Do I want to use the same quarterback? How do I really approach a three max? I would probably make three different stacks, I think, just to give yourself a chance at one stack going off, uh, especially if you're doing game stacks. I, I like that idea. I'm not opposed to then having, you know, if you have a running back value that you just think is the absolute best value on this slate, I'm not opposed to putting that running back in two or all three of the lineups. But as far as the actual stack, I think you want to differentiate your lineups a little bit because the goal in any tournament, whether it's three max, 20 max, 150 max, is you want to give yourself a chance to have one lineup that can win the contest. You're not entering tournaments if you're not trying to get that first place prize, if you're not trying to win. So I think having three different stacks is my most normal approach to a three max. The other thing I'll say with the three max talked about this a little bit at the top of the show when we were explaining about how you don't have to be as contrarian in smaller field tournaments. You still want to think about being contrarian in a three max contest. A lot of times what happens is the chalk becomes uber chalk in a three max contest. And the benefit of fading that chalk becomes even more rewarding. The thing that you don't have to do is make a crazy play. So it's more about fading a couple of uber chalk spots than it is making a crazy 1% owned type play. I think that's the difference. Whereas that crazy 1% owned type play, maybe you try that in the Millie Maker, three max, fade the chalk, but do it with a guy that's still a top five running back value. Nick Chubb, again, is the mega chalk week one, fade him, but play Le'Veon Bell, who's similarly priced, has a similar volume expectation, just because of the matchup doesn't have, you know, as much hype from the public. Yeah, do you find that is the best way to do it, Drew, instead of just picking a random guy to be contrarian is see where the chalk is going to be and just kind of look two spots up, two spots down and be like, oh, that guy is also very good. Like, I know you guys don't have Joe Mixon uh, projected for a lot in week one, but let's say you said, you know what, out of 10, I rate Nick Chubb an eight out of 10. I rate Joe Mixon a six and a half out of 10. But the disparity between the chalk, Nick Chubb, and the no-owned Joe Mixon is enough for me to go on to Mixon. Yeah, I, so I think the the best the best plays that you can ever find in DFS are ones that the public is not interested in for whatever reason, and the math says they're reasonable. And so Joe Mixon would be an example of that. I think he's just inside our top ten at the running back position in terms of values, but towards that bottom end of the top ten, if you scroll uh, up here to where Chubb and Bell and Barkley are, you don't see him immediately, but he's right there. Um, and he's priced somewhat similar to those guys. And we would expect, we don't have our ownership uh, projections anywhere near uh, ready at this point in the season, but we would expect he will likely be much lower owned uh, than the group up, up there. And so if you're going to get him at a third, a fifth, a sixth of the ownership of some of the guys that he projects only a few points behind, those are tremendous plays. And one of my best uh, weeks during the NFL season a few years ago was when Theo Riddick was out for Detroit and I was doing a bunch of shows and I was talking about how Golden Tate was the guy that we expected to pick up a lot of the receiving workload because he kind of operated in the same space as Theo Riddick. And we thought it was going to be a really big opportunity for Golden Tate. And Golden Tate was having a, a really slow start to the season at that point. Every show I went on, people were like, I don't see it with Golden Tate. Who else do you got? 
And by the end of the week, we had ownership projections of Golden Tate at like three to 5%. And I was like, okay, the math really supports this as he's a pretty good play and the public's not on it at all. Those are the best types of plays you can make. And in generally good GPP lineups, they come with uncomfortable plays. So a guy like Joe Mixon, who's a road underdog, um, going into Seattle, a team that has historically played great defense at home, is going to be a situation where nobody's going to want to play that guy. But Seattle has had some defensive injuries this year. The loss of A.J. Green early in the season condenses the target share, opens up a little bit more volume for Joe Mixon. You start to build that mathematical case behind a player the public is not behind. Those are good tournament plays. Well, I think the big thing that people would fall into the trap of here, Drew, is that if you do that in week one and it doesn't work, and then it completely right. throws off your strategy, you need to kind of commit to doing this. Yeah, you have to you have to stick to whatever strategy. You have to understand, like mathematically, if we were all even, uh, we all had the same level of skill going into a tournament, and we were all playing, the payout structure of the tournament is only going to reward 20% of us or so. So that means 80% of the time, your normal expectation, if you have the same skill set of everyone else and you're making one lineup, 80% of the time you're going to lose. That needs to be your expectation when you're doing these things that are contrarian because you're trying to get to the top of the tournament and get the most value out of that payout structure that you can get. So you have to be comfortable understanding that, hey, I'm probably going to lose 80% of the time, but when I'm right, I'm going to get paid big. Uh, Mike, I want to go back to your idea of different stacks, at least for these three max entries, that if you make three separate stacks, team stacks, game stacks, whatever they may be for your three separate lineups, would you then have a consistent core of the other guys that you like? I know you kind of hit on this a little bit, but if there is a $4,200 receiver you like or a $3,200 tight end, that those that guy just makes each one of those lineups if they're not involved in the stack that you want to use? I'd probably have two guys that two to three guys that are in two to three of the lineups, if that makes sense. So I, I wouldn't say you have to take three guys and put them in all three lineups, but I think if you take two to three guys that you call your core, have them in two to three of the lineups, maybe you rotate it. So you have a com, you know, each combination of those three guys one time, you know, that sort of thing I think makes a lot of sense to give your then you sort of have this framework where if I hit on my core, then I just need one of my three stacks to pay off sort of thing. So it's kind of a combination of a spread approach and a concentrated approach together. It's a little bit of a different version of the barbell strategy we talked earlier. I think that makes a lot of sense. Hopefully that was you know, helpful. I know it's a little bit vague. Uh, Drew, how many guys for either a team stack or a game stack are just too many? Hmm. So I think that question, you always have to think about it in the context of the size of the slate as a whole and how many, how many points you expect to be like scored on the slate. So sometimes you'll get these slates later in the season, whether it's through bye weeks or whether it's through you know, NFL scheduling where late in the season they have some of those Saturday games and, and more primetime games where the slate size condenses a little bit. And instead of having you know, 16 games or 14 games, uh, you might have like 10 or 9. Um, those are interesting weeks where I think you can up the number of players in one specific game because you are fading less games to potentially have all those points come from. Similarly, if you have one game that has a total that's, let's say, 15 points higher than everybody else on the slate because there's a bunch of bad weather through the East Coast or something like that, you could see scenarios where you might have more players from that game than you normally would. So that that's the first thing that I'd say is like think about the context of how many points might be available on the slate. And, how, and what, what am I really trying to hit with this one lineup? I would say generally on a normal size slate, like one of these big main slates that has 13 to 14 games on it, 
I would generally want to have a maximum of, let's say, the quarterback paired with two of their pass catchers, maybe three in one of the in, in the smaller uh, slate weeks where things can get wild. Um, and then I would have like two opponents coming back. So I would say five players is kind of a general guideline for me on a big main slate, a normal size slate, but I might go up to six or seven on some of those more condensed slates where I think most of the points might just come from one game. All right, let's oh, go ahead, Mike. Well, the other thing too is not only the size of the slate, but the size of the tournament. So if you have to beat less people, uh, there's less of a chance that your lineup has to be absolutely perfect. You know, less of a chance that the random wide receiver that went off is on a bunch of these teams and they have the right combination around that random receiver. And as a result, the correlation becomes even more important, the smaller the field. So I think if you're in a smaller field, like a 200 man contest, you might be more prone to build a giant game stack because then you just sort of need one thing to go right and you can win a tournament. If the game goes absolutely bonkers. You're in a really good spot. Whereas if you're in a tournament with 150,000 people, the game goes bonkers you know, that third receiver you took from the game who had 15 DraftKings points while there's a 2% owned receiver that went for 25 and you can't quite make the perfect lineup to get there. So I would take that into account as well. Let's exit three max. Let's talk about single entry contests. And I know we've been over the mass multi-entry now, the three max, I would guess drew that a single entry lineup would resemble more of one of the three max lineups than one of these gigantic GPPs that you'd be playing. But is there anything different about a single entry than any of the stuff that we've touched on already? No, not, not, not really. I think that the difference is ultimately in some people, as Mike alluded to before, have a harder time being contrarian, the less lineups that they have. So naturally what that means is those types of contests often get a little bit condensed in the ownership where the best values are higher owned than they would be in a mass multi-entry field because in the mass multi-entry field, people feel more confident in being different because they know they have to beat so many people. In, a, in smaller field single entries, oftentimes people are like, oh, I can just play my cash game lineup or oh, I'll just play my cash game lineup and I'll slightly pivot with a little bit more correlation. And you certainly can do that because there's fewer people you're trying to beat, but that makes it even more advantageous when more people are doing that to be a little bit different. So I would say the one rule of advice or the one piece of advice that I'd give for those creating single entry lineups is don't be afraid to be a little bit uncomfortable in that lineup building as well. Because what most of us do, what most of our instincts are, and I'm guilty of this as well, is when you're building out three or five or 10 or 20 lineups, those first few lineups are the ones you have all the confidence in the world in. And then you're like, oh yeah, I'll get different here. And now I'm being different and I have the contrarian lineups. But when you just have one lineup to focus on, ultimately, sometimes we, we hesitate to be a little bit different. But those are often the contests that you're getting rewarded the most heavily by being different. Uh, Mike, any single entry tips you got for the peoples? Nope. I think Drew covered it perfectly. 100% agree with what he said. All right. Um, like I mentioned before, there's a bunch of ways, really, to get into the draws for the 20 DK dollars. You can follow me on Instagram. You sub to the show uh, on and leave an audio review. You share the show around on social networks. Or if you just smash the like button for the video, leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section and give me your best tip to win uh, on DraftKings, your single best tip that you have. Uh, that's how you get into the draw for the 20 DK bucks. And remember that promo code, the PME, will get you 10% off the Daily Roto product, which we've been showcasing through and there's college football as well there's tons of sports up there so you do want to look into that but overall tips to win i want to rapid fire this just a little bit and drew we'll start with you if i bring up we'll play some word association here if i say 
pace of play. How important is it to target teams that play an up-tempo pace of play and just run more plays? Very important. One of the first things that I'd look at each and every week is trying to figure out which teams are going to play the most plays so you can figure out who's going to have the most opportunities. Stacking up the most opportunities on your team is one of the best ways to add value above your opponents in DFS. Mike? Agree. Very important. Volume is king in DFS and individual volume stems from team volume, which comes from the amount of plays they're going to run. All right, Mike, we'll stick with you on this one. If there is a running back injury day of or after the pricing gets released and there is that cheap running back who is going to get all the volume, but you know that he's going to be like 40, 45% owned, do you lock him in anyway? Yeah, I I say you can lock in uh, the if let's say it's a sub 4k running back and you're confident he's going to get the volume in all three facets of the game, rushing, receiving goal line work. I'm fine eating the chalk uh, in a high percentage of lineups. Drew. Yeah. Cheap chalk running backs are pretty much the only place in DFS NFL in tournaments that I am excited to play chalk. I think most of the other places you want to be cognizant of what your uh, opportunities are, but usually with those cheap chalk running backs, they're competing against very few players priced similarly to them where they're getting that amount of volume. You want to take advantage of that and not worry too much about ownership in those situations. Okay. The late swap feature on DraftKings where you can move a guy out after the one o'clock games or just before the one o'clock games and if they haven't played yet. First of all, you always want to put a late swap player in your flex, someone from the later games that you can make adjustments to. Drew, why is that so important? It's super important because nobody does it. I shouldn't say nobody does it, but very few people do it. And so what you're doing is you're giving yourself more decisions than your opponent and more opportunities to beat your opponent. And whether it's in tournaments, whether it's in cash games, head-to-heads, double-ups, whatever it is, the more decisions you have to be able to, to best your opponent, the better you off, the better you are in terms of being able to realize value. So take advantage of late swap. Use it to your advantage. If a team gets from behind, don't quit on that team. Find ways to be different to potentially resurrect that team and salvage some min caches. Yeah, so Mike, if you're thinking about late swapping, let's say you have a disastrous early slate of games and you know that you are playing from behind, you need to late swap. What's the best course of action there? Like, who do you late swap onto? Do you just have to go off the chalk plays? And conversely, if you smash in the early games, if you had a riskier player in your flex spot and you're ahead in one of these tournaments or very high up, would you then want to go onto a chalkier player? I think the first scenario is easier where you're behind, you're clearly behind, you've had some landmines and some mistakes where... You absolutely have to pivot off the chalk. Again, it can be a scenario where you just drop down to the second or third best value. I'll never forget the week where I was like drawing dead after the one o'clock games. A situation happened in Seattle where Thomas Rawls was the starting running back, you know, plugged him in everywhere, even though I left salary on the table and very fortunate, very lucky. He had an insane game. I cashed a ton of those lineups. It was a very low probability event to occur. But it was greater than zero, which is where my lineup would have been if I did not make the swap. And any edge over the course of the season, over multiple seasons that you can get is going to make a big difference over the long term. Now, if you have a lineup that smashes out of the gate, I'm really conflicted on this because I think again it comes down to what type of contest you're in. If you're playing cash games, you definitely want to chalkify that lineup if you get a good start. Even if you think maybe they're a little bit worse plays, but you know there's going to be a huge disparity in ownership. You know, take the higher owned guys uh, and pretty much solidify that cash game. Now, if it's tournaments, if I'm in a 200 man contest and I'm looking really good, I may chalk that up a little bit. 
if I'm in one of the really large field contests, my tendency is to let it ride unless it's just like a super crazy play I can pivot off of. Um, but I kind of let it ride in those scenarios just because it's really hard to tell all the different options and combinations that are behind you that could be perfect as well. And there's probably still some equity in being a bit contrarian in the really large field tournaments, even if you are off to that, you know, quote unquote, perfect start. We discussed this a little bit when talking about the Nick Chubb, Joe Mixon situation, but the way that I've always tried to think about pivoting off of a chalkier player onto someone else who's in the same price range, even if they're a bit lower projected, but still within the range of outcomes, obviously, you don't want to pivot off a good player onto an objectively bad player. That's not a good idea whatsoever. Although I've done it, which is why I'm not super successful all the time, but I always like to think of it in the fact is if you have, let's say a Nick Chubb is going to be 20% owned and that's where the projection comes in. And someone like Joe Mixon is going to be 5% owned. The way that I would like to think of it is, is Nick Chubb going to outscore Joe Mixon four out of five times in this scenario? Drew, is that an interesting way to think about it? Is that how you should be thinking about it? That's exactly the way to think about it, Pat. You've, you've got it figured out. You, you Basically, you're getting paid uh, two different prices on a player every single week. There's the price DraftKings lists, and then there's the price that the field is applying to that player in terms of ownership. And so when you're first making your lineups, what everybody in DFS has figured out over the years is the first thing to figure out is how, how many fantasy points can they score to be worth that price? The second thing to figure out is How much of an advantage do they create over the field based on that price and the ownership that they have associated with them? So your way of thinking about it is the perfect way in that scenario. Does Nick Chubb outscore Joe Mixon uh, more than four times uh, the frequency? And if the answer in your head is no, then the better play is Joe Mixon. Mike, what do you use in terms of what Vegas gives you as information, whether it be on game totals, the spreads, and you utilize that when trying to initially do your research and project your players? Yeah, so Vegas is a big part of our initial projections because that team total, not only does it flow down into the individual you know, touchdown projections and field goal projections for players, but... One, you can customize that if you think Vegas is off uh, and you can see where the market might be wrong and the fantasy players that they like, where if you raise the team total on Cincinnati from 18 to 22 and Joe Mixon all of a sudden is a really good play you and people aren't going to play him, you can use Vegas in that manner. It's a very good median expectation to set to get this initial feel for where guys should project, but then you can also use it as a way to figure out where the market you know, may or may not be right. I will say I do like to follow line movement a little bit throughout the week. I don't go overboard because, you know, in general, our projections are adjusting to the line. You know, the, the team total line also feeds into some of the other back end team metrics that we project, you know, run pass percentage, uh, you know, just total teams plays, total team efficiency, the spread in the line or the spread and the team total feed into that a little bit. So, but that's more of a nuance type thing. But as the line shifts throughout the week, if I see a huge shift in a line, it might just kind of trigger something to double check, you know, that, okay, that total dropped four points. You know, is this quarterback healthy, even though they say he's going to play, maybe he's playing and he's hurt, you know, that sort of thing. It just makes you sort of double check. It's a way to, you know, reevaluate and make sure you're not missing something when you see a pretty big line change towards the tail end of the week. Drew, is there anything to add to that? And do player props, individual player props, factor your decision-making at all? 
No. Uh, I know, uh, once again, I love you, Peter Jennings. I know you love player props, but they are not a part of my decision-making whatsoever. The player props market is generally a low-limit market, very uh, illiquid in terms of um, how it's being bet. So it hasn't been made efficient by kind of the market as a whole. So it's not, um, it's not a resource that I use. I think if there's a player prop that is outlandishly different than what our projection is, then I'm interested in trying to dig in on the projection again. Um, but that's that's a rare scenario that that happens. Usually the player props are within striking distance of most of our player projections anyway. Um, in terms of using Vegas to help, I think the ways Mike illustrated are the ways that generally it, it helps my process. It, it funnels a lot of the work for our projections in terms of uh, play calling and in terms of pace of play and different things that are associated with those team totals. And then on the, the rare occasion that you do see big line movement, it is a good indicator, kind of a flag warning to just check in and reassess that, that game you're looking at. Drew, we'll stick with you on this one for a long time. When you see that Q next to a guy's name on DraftKings, they're questionable yeah. to play. We don't know. But all of a sudden, let's say Leonard Fournette, he's questionable all week. He missed practice on Friday. But we get word at 11.35 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday morning that he's good to go and he has a good matchup. You know he's coming in low-owned because people didn't have them in their lineups to begin with. Are those ever players to target? And Do you like to risk on those guys? So I would say just in general, any information that is unclear and revealed on Sunday morning opens up a big opportunity for players that are going to be low owned, whether it's a situation like you described where the player is questionable all week, because most people are building their lineups on you know Friday or Saturday. They're not coming back to necessarily check in and make adjustments to their lineups. So that news that breaks, you know, an hour and a half before kickoff of the one o'clock games is usually news that can help. Uh, highlight which players are going to be lower owned. So those situations where a player is a surprise scratch, their replacement running back or their replacement wide receiver, you know you're going to get pretty good uh, number on in terms of the ownership. So I do often adjust my lineups heavily on Sunday morning based on how that news is moving around. Not necessarily because it's moving projections substantially, but because I know it's uh, revealing opportunities to get low on players into my lineups. Uh, Mike, as a part of the Daily Roto system, what sort of alerts can we expect uh, coming to us from Daily Roto on Sunday morning? So we update the projections all morning, Sunday morning, as news comes in, as the team totals and the lines change. We're updating those. We're active in our subscriber Slack chat. We also email out NFL lineup alerts. So if something big happens that we think really changes the landscape of players out um, that we didn't expect to be out, we'll send that out. And then we also provide the inactives for every team. Uh, you know, we're looking to build a separate page for that, that auto refreshes on our site. But if we don't have that done by the time the season starts, we will email out all the inactives to our subscribers. So you know exactly you know, who's in, who's out. Uh, we'll email the beat reports that we find that are important. And again, I think the biggest thing of all that, though, is keeping up to date with the projections, both the ownership projections and the raw fantasy point total projections so that you're in the position to make the best decision possible as the, you know, the information flow becomes broader. Final thing. As we break down the strategy for DraftKings for the 2019 football season, Drew, we'll go to you first. What is something that people cannot do or do and should not be doing? So the first thing is always make sure that your flex position is a late game player that you can take advantage of the late swapping. 
Um, one, you should not ever do that if you have like an early game player in that flex spot, unless you've used like three running backs all from the early games. And two, you can't afford to not late swap uh, and take advantage of that during the course of the season. It is such a huge edge over the field when you are using it correctly. Mike, what is a do not do for you? That's a tough one. I know Colin Drew would say don't play naked quarterback, and I, I'm going to go against him, and I will play some naked quarterbacks. He's our correlation uh, guru. Uh, I guess I will say do not enter a cash game lineup into a tournament. Oh, really? So even if I enter a double up, I don't want to throw that one into the millie just in case I miss out? Exactly. That's everyone's thought process. That was my thought process for years was, well, what if my cash lineup is the nuts at this point with all the information out there, the landscape that DFS is in, how big some of these contests are in, uh, how much ownership there is on cash plays. I will say, you know, nine times out of 10, it is a negative expected value to simply enter your cash game lineup into a tournament. And almost everyone does it because of, reasons that have more to do with emotional bias than they have to do with you know playing the game correctly yeah i can say the biggest tip that i can give anyone out there is just take a look at my cheat sheet up on DraftKings playbook every single week and get them clicks and you're gonna want to read it and then just don't take those guys and you'll probably end up profiting <laughs> that's that's definitely the easiest way to go about this but drew and Mike, thank you for being on. I'd say we'd get into showdown, but uh, I don't even want you to give me the brief synopsis. I want you to give me the sell job, Drew, on why everyone should become a subscriber at Daily Roto. Promo code the PME for 10% off. Just to read Colin's breakdown of showdown, the, the king of showdown contest, Colin Drew. Yeah, so I honestly think this is one of the most valuable pieces of information in the NFL DFS landscape. Colin has won nine showdown G. <laughs> over the course of the last year with using this strategy and using our optimizer to maximize correlation specifically with the captain spot. He breaks down uh, with a great acronym uh, called SHARP, how to use kind of our tools and our projections and the correlation to make lineups that give you the best chance of winning showdown contests. And I honestly, when he said he was going to write it, I thought he was crazy because it, he's done so well with it. And it is a unique strategy. It is one we talk through specifically in our alerts because we have showdown specific alerts and in our content, but it is not one that has been outlined in such an easy, digestible way to improve your process playing showdown games. All right, that will do it on the Pat Mayo Experience. Welcome to DraftKings NFL 2019. I want to thank Mike for being on the line at Two Hats One Mike. Double the expenses uh, for Mike on Twitter at Drew Dinkmeyer. For him on Twitter, you can follow at Daily Roto as well. Guys, any final thoughts? No, thanks so much for having us on, Mayo. I'm you know really looking forward to this NFL season. I think it's going to be you know a great one, especially Josh Allen, baby. What did you say about Josh Allen before the show? I just said that everyone's all in on Kyler Murray. You should be in on Josh Allen instead. That's the move. <laughs> I can't I can't top that on an exit. We should go out on Josh Allen. But thanks for having us, Pat. Uh, it's always great to do these shows, and uh, I hope everyone has a great NFL season.
Like I said, the PME to get yourself 10% off the daily Roto subscriptions, whether it's NFL, whether it's college, whether it's the whole shebang, that promo code will work for you. I highly recommend it. I told you all the ways that you can get into the draws for the 20 DK bucks, but I want to reiterate, all those iTunes review really do help out the show substantially. So please go review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it may be. Even if you don't want to get in the draw, I don't know why you wouldn't want to get in the draw, but let's say, hey, leave that money for the other people. Just please go do it anyway. And and share the show around. I think this is a very valuable show. Most of the shows I do are basically full of garbage, but this one is actually substantive and important if you actually want to get a leg up on the competition and win some money on DraftKings this season. That'll do it for me. I'm Pat Mayo. Good luck. It's the upcoming DraftKings season with NFL. I'll see you next time. Experience. Experience.